Happy New Year from the Gig Stories podcast. Hello, it's me, it's Chris. Um, hope you all had a cracking festive break. It's just me today. Alex is still sunning himself in deepest, darkest Wales, but he'll be back firing on all cylinders next episode. Sorry, I missed a comma. He'll be back firing on all cylinders next episode. Firstly, an apology in our previous episode. Alex, well, he, he slagged off Sprouts and his views do not reflect the views of the podcast. And we are sorry if any offence or upset was caused. He won't do it again. And by this time next year, I will have made him eat a sprout and I'm going to change his mind. Now to the episode. We released our first episode in March of this year, of 2020, and this is our 29th. Since then, we've had 27 guests, and obviously doing a compilation of all of the best bits would take hours and hours and hours. I think you'll agree. So, here's a compilation of some of the best bits from our first 10 episodes. We're talking REM with Clint Boone. Happy Mondays with Gaz Whelan, Shawadi Wadi with Catherine Williams, Tangles with the Law with Rick Witter, and much, much more. So, sit back, enjoy, and I'll be back at the end. Going to a gig and listening to them play live it isn't just about the music. It's about all these other, some of them are quite intangible things that just yes. make it good. Yes. And it can be about the music that plays before the band comes on. It can be about who you're with. It could be the venue itself. And uh, it's, there's so many different things. And that's it. something that I want to speak to our future guests about. It's kind of trying to boil it down or maybe broaden it out. What yeah. does... What makes a good gig great? What makes a good gig bad? What elevates it? What can take away? And um, I'm interested to kind of get to the nub of it. And by the end of this podcast in 2054, (laughs) um, we will have an answer. We will have all of the answers. I'm I'm not sure we will. (laughs) (laughs) No, but we'll have forgotten what the question is. Yeah, exactly. We'll just be rambling on. No one will be listening. We'll just be us with the microphone. We won't have even switched the microphone on. (laughs) No, we won't know how to. So this is a really, it could be a really blah, vague one, but favourite gig. And, And it can be... As a punter or as, you know, on a, a performer, is there a moment where you just thought, that was my favourite gig ever? Is there one that you put to that? Um, Lords, but how, how do you pick your favourite one? Um, as a punter, probably R.E.M. at Glastonbury, 2003, 2003. Oh, was it three? Okay. So it's a year... Is it, was it? I was I, talking about it. I, I think it might have been 2000. Did they, have they done it twice? I think so, yeah. And I've got a feeling it's 2003. Okay. What is it now? 20? Yeah, it, 2003. Hazy. So it was, not only was it a magic moment because I'd met them in the afternoon when they arrived on site. I'm a massive REM fan. Mm. So I met them in the afternoon when they arrived on site because our port cabin was in the same 
enclosure reserves. So I got to meet them. And then... Hang on. There's a famous photograph. Yeah. Mr. Photographer Chris here. In the enemy. Yeah. The lightsabers. Lightsabers. Yeah. Who, yeah. who was in that picture? Uh, Georgia Gill. So this isn't a quick fire on this, is it? But no, so, no, no. so me and Craig, massive REM fans. And um, and that's Craig, um, the beautiful drummer from yeah, the Inspiral Carpets. Sadly no longer with us. But, um, so we, we figured out, to be honest, we went down there and I didn't realise we we're on the same stage on the same day as REM. I knew they were playing over the weekend. <laughs> But when it dawned on us, because we played sometime in the afternoon, we were like early doors, uh, but on the pyramid stage. When it dawned on us that REM are probably going to arrive in this paddock later on, and one of these cabins will be theirs. So let's stick around as long as we can, and hopefully we'll get to meet them. Because a lot of these festivals, you get moved on. Once you've done your gig, you get moved out. You can't oh, really? Do you? Because okay. it's like Echo and the Bunnymen need it now, so you're going to have to get out. <laughs> so, um, so, you, so you've got lots of tea and coffee just to make sure that you were going to be able to speak to them in a, yeah. a, a really composed you know, manner. Yeah? You know what actually happened. We got battered. We got battered. I think it was like dusk. It was coming to dusk. Hashtag red stripes. So it was me and Craig. I can't remember. I, I don't think the rest of the band were there. I think they might have left and gone back up north or whatever, or back to the hotel. And we are there, me, Craig, little Georgia. And, and that's, that's Craig's daughter. daughter yeah. yeah, she was like three or four at the time. Right. And she got some lightsabers. I think they bought these lightsabers on site to keep mm. her occupied. And she's like playing with everybody doing that. Peter Buck and Mike Mills arrived in the paddock. And me and Craig spotted them. So we went over and started talking to them. And they were being really nice. We, we were just like, fucking jibbering. I thought, I'm fine. I'm a big fan. I've grown since here. And then, oh my and then, so they're there with, in conversation. So then Michael Stipe arrived. And what does he do? He comes right over to us because he can see his mates yeah. out of the band. And, you know, us likes it. He didn't know who we, we were at the time. But he comes over and me and Craig are like, oh, fuck Michael Stipe's come over. <laughs> it's introduced so Craig is such an REM fan that Georgia is named Georgia because that's where they're from where they're from so that was what he wanted to say amazing and what came out was because <laughs> it, it wasn't just drinking juice this, you know what I mean yeah and I'm there like And then all afternoon I'd be doing this thing with um, <coughs> to keep Georgia occupied or to keep her entertained. I was throwing sweets up and catching them in my mouth and peanuts. So she's there. I'm trying to talk to Michael Stipe, trying to sound, you know, human. Human. <laughs> yeah. And she just says, Clint, 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 show him, out, show him that trick you've been doing all day. So I'm like, oh, I start throwing these fucking uh, toffees up, sweets, peanuts, whatever. And I can't do it. <laughs> and they're bouncing, bouncing all over the place. I swear one bounced off his, Michael Stipe's shoulder or his head. I've said in interviews it was his head, but it bounced off him and it was just like, I could see all this in slow motion thinking, you absolute twat. <laughs> you are oh, like... Um, I've got a feeling he'll remember that moment because I, I know that when we had The Beast Inside out, our second album, he mentioned us in an interview, Stipe, and I think it was like American Playboy or something like that. They'd, Brilliant. That, that was one of his favourite albums or something he was listening to at the time. So he, he'll probably remember that moment because we would have said, and, um, and then seeing us in such a mess, I bet he'll remember it. Do you know what I would love? 
I would love to ask Michael Stipe about the moment he met Clint Boone <laughs> from the Spark Habits. I would love to well, hear we've, we've his got side of the anecdote. We've got him on yeah, next week. Cool. <laughs> was a sort of sexual awakening <laughs> because there was like what? I don't know if you remember this about Shwadi Wadi but they used to wear, they used to wear like suit jackets but then their trousers were like leggings and um oh, I just declined that sorry it's my mum again um <laughs> I love that <laughs> she's like she's like why have you declined me um <laughs> I'm talking about Shwadi's pants <laughs> <laughs> yeah so so yeah there were I remember distinctly when I went and got my autograph and I still have the photo with all of the signatures from Shawadi Wadi no way. um I do yeah yeah not here it's you not here not, I don't know where you, it is do you have the ticket stub uh I don't think I have the ticket stub but I definitely have the photo with the with with all of the signatures on i think chris that might be better than the ticket stub so so catherine chris and i both realized that um being the geeks we are we both have scrapbooks that we've kept um and most of them are are, are 90s chris has got a lot from um more recent times as well uh, of all our ticket stubs and so we've been discovering what our earliest first ticket stub is um and Shawadi Wadi, if I'm not mistaken, wasn't that Clint Boone's first gig as well? It wasn't his first gig, but it, he was a big um, Shawadi Wadi fan. And then, um, and then Punk came along, and Shawadi Wadi got left in the dust. So, quite, so I quite like the idea that like it's like seven degrees of Kevin Bacon. If you speak to every single person who's a musician from now on, and Shawadi Wadi is the only <laughs> thing that links them all, it would be yeah. so brilliant. Well, well that's one, one degree of Shawadi Wadi from Clint Boone. <laughs> yes. yes. It's got to be the cramps, which was wow somewhere in Portugal in a bull ring. It was like what? it was a, it was the weirdest lineup. It was like I don't know if we were it was it was suicidal tendencies, Ash and the cramps. I think it was just <laughs> that I think was just, the lineup. I think so. I think I can't remember if we were on before suicidal tendencies, but I think we were like bang in the middle. But. Uh, <laughs> Because I, I, I didn't really know anything about the cramps at that point. So it was just like, I had no, no sort of like expectations. I remember just sort of going out, going out front. Cause I, kind of, I knew the logo and stuff. I'd never, I don't think I'd ever heard a single song. And I was just like transfixed from yeah. it. It's just, just like that primal rock and roll. It's just, you know, there's something about it. And just as, as a performance, like they finished in Surfing Bird, which was about 20 minutes long. 
and it was <laughs> it was just like it was just the song and then it was them just like playing that riff for 18 minutes while Lux Interior it got microphone stand after microphone stand from the side of the stage with like a big heavy round bass on it I was just smashing it smashing it into the floor it was like a it was like a it was like a festival stage where he's like smashing the microphone into the stage and then like take the, the stand the pole part and just like wrapping it around the other one and go and get another one he did it like he did it for like 15 minutes so we were just like watching this going like wow this is insane and then he dropped through the stage the band stopped <laughs> and it was just like wow that's how you end a show so we we went up and st- we went up the stage afterwards and the size of the hole was so tiny <laughs> it was it was like about the size of my leg how you get through that hole i don't know so he dropped through a hole in the stage that he had made himself <laughs> Yeah. That's the best thing ever. That was so that. good. I love that. That's excellent. My God. I, I love, love stuff like that. I love stuff like that. That's why live live performance is just the best, man. It's actually it's reminded me of another gig we did, like just talking about awkward lineups. Was uh I think it was yes. uh, this was in ninety six. So this was uh we were playing in Leipzig in Germany. It was like festival, kind of festival. It was like Bowie headlining and oh, Iggy, wow. but as Bowie who refuses to go on stage after Iggy. So guess who gets the job of like going in the middle slot? Yeah, <laughs> us. <laughs> really? No way. Yeah. So I remember go, going out and watching Iggy and it was just like, wow, just, you know, him like throwing himself around like it's like, lunatic and then we we played played afterwards this like stone cold audience but uh, it was it was it was a tough one but yeah we got you guys were very much involved um with the good friday agreement day was it the vote or the actual agreement day it was the it was just before the vote was it just before the vote yeah yeah it was um yeah i was we we'd been sort of we were quite out of it at the time, because we were actually recording um, our Nuclear Sounds follow-up to 1977. We were in the studio, so we didn't really have that much of an idea like what was going on in Northern Ireland in terms of the the sort of like the atmosphere and what way things were going. But we like when Bono got in touch, he was saying that you know it was like the uh, the no campaign had like, kind of like, grabbed all the headlines, and the whole reason he wanted to do it was to try and because it was it was just like it was all negative. And him and John Hume had got together and was like, we need to do something to try and, you know, capture a bit of the limelight from the new camp and sort of like push, nice. push, try and push this thing through. Because they thought it was like, you know, this is going to be dead in the water if it continues this way. So it was a very hastily arranged thing. It was like, can you guys do this? We're like, of course, yeah. We're So they approached you then? Yeah, yeah. It was they they want they, you know, like it was John Hume and Bono's idea to do it. And I think they got David Crim- David Trimble to agree to sort of same time as this like, kind of like thing they'd never done before. Yeah. Um, but they, they, they wanted like a band to represent Northern Ireland as well. So like you, you two from the South and, and us from the North and sort of like older generation, younger generation thing as well. So, yeah, we were like, right, let's get a, get a tour bus to the studio. We'll come up, and as we were like driving up overnight, like 
Oh no, I think he had a few at that point. It was like sort of like arguing with Tim over which which songs we were going to cover and stuff like that because he wanted to do give piece a chance and Tim's going like, no, it's way too cheesy. Um, so <clears throat> ended ended. He's like, right, he's like, right, I'll, I'll call you back and like, drew on a bit. And then a, a, an hour later, a few drinks later, he's like, right, we'll do uh, uh, don't let me down, which we ended up agreeing on. For that but yeah I mean that was like well, what an intense day that was it was just like I don't really remember much of it I just know it was just this big it was a media world basically world's media was that an easy decision for you guys because yeah it, it was was it because you know yeah. some some bands uh don't don't want to mix music and politics and but for for you guys that was that was something important to do yeah I mean I think you know musically we we kind of like didn't really like the troubles didn't really inform any of our like songwriting choices yeah um because we we very much you know we grew up in the thick of it like well, not quite in the thick of it but you know it was like it was we were born into the troubles it was yeah with, with us every day you know we're just like on the news every night and i suppose on that day you you would have had to have your music head on but also if you are being you know, badgered by the press as well. You got to have your kind of political head on as well, and have to kind of, you know, a bit of a head mess of that one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was just, it was just like, you know, we 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 used to sort of like to a certain extent used to the media having like number one album stuff like that. We knew like what a head melter that was, but this was like, you know, this this is you two, and this is you know, future of the peace process, and this is like, you know. CNN, you know, BBC, six o'clock news is just like, it's a completely different level. So it was just, I don't, I don't really remember much about it. I think we didn't really have very much rehearsal time either. I think we did a quick run through of stuff with YouTube and the dressing room before, like I think it was after our gig and before they played. I just have to ask about <laughs> what, what is Bono like? I don't like salacious gossip, but come on, you two. Uh, and I'm a fan, so let me just say I'm a fan of you yeah. too. I've grown up taking a lot of stick for that. I still do. But um, what was that like? Was it, could you just tell that they were a different beast? That they were something something else? No, they they seemed like just like another band to me. It was it was weird. It was just like you know, it's like this is you too. It's like but they were just like they were very kind of approachable, funny. Yeah, there's really that was that was that was the that was the weird thing about them, but yeah. Um and Bono. Cause I think he's easily <laughs> he's easily picked on, isn't he, Bono? But yeah, he is, but I, I I was I was a fan as well when I was younger. I remember like I got it got into them sort of like towards the end of the Joshua tree phase, but I really yeah. got into I saw them saw them live on the Zuropa tour. Yes, me which too. Is, yeah, I mean, I, obviously, I thought that was that was great because like, they'd gone from this like kind of like, very serious, you know, very political to really kind of just like playing with everything. It was just like a completely different band. I thought it was like Aston Baby. Yeah, yeah, great. That's probably my my best gig ever. Was Zoo TV tour in in the National Stadium, Cardiff? It was just yeah. it was unreal. But uh, yeah, you know, it's like Bono, like met him a few. Well, you know, we 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 saw my story in Twitter that we shouldn't mention any further here. But you know, he's 
<laughs> did he call you? He called you the c word. He did, yeah. I was way apart. <laughs> in jest, in jest, was he, or did he actually mean that he thought you were a total? He was sort of, he was kind of laughing as he said it, but he thought because he was kind of laughing as he shot me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was like it, it was at the it was at the NME Awards, and uh, I was I was sort of sat at the table, just wasn't talking to anyone. Sort of looked around, and just like Bono sat down, like at his table right behind us. I was like. All right, how's it going? He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, not too bad. What do you say? What do you say about it? I was like, oh, okay, congratulations on the number two thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, to, to which he laughed and said, F off, you see. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think he thought that I was taking the piss, but I wasn't because we, I think, I was, because uh, I, I, I put this story up on Twitter because like, we ended up, we, we did a, there's like a, I think it's Sirius FM, XM radio thing in the States. We did a, they, they've started like a, a U2 show on there or something. So they, they were interviewing bands that have played with them and stuff. And we, we did it. And I, I used this as a, as a platform to tell my great story about how Bono called me a C. <laughs> 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 Which I enjoy telling, but you know. That's a lovely passive aggressive compliment you paid there though. That was, that was a beauty. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but I think I think it was the same week that Shining Light went, that charted as well and it went in at number 10 so when he was like because he, he thought and I was like you know, I was like well you know I'd take number two yeah, he, <laughs> and, uh, and he was like, like he, he did he did see the funny side of it but he's alright you know so we, we played with him like well we played with them since so he obviously wasn't that affected right, okay. <laughs> but yeah. um A band that I didn't expect to like because I'd listened to their album but I hadn't seen them live was The Killers. And I saw them live and they completely changed my mind. I loved The Killers. Like this is years ago, like probably All right. So you weren't you weren't uh, you weren't too fussed on the album then? Not fussed on the album at all. And this is the power of a festival uh, um a, a live gig. Yeah. Uh, that you can listen to it and go, Oh my god, you completely changed my opinion. It was incredible the first time I heard the killers. I absolutely loved them. And, uh, and, and uh, if we're talking about something that's unexpected, uh, a gig that I went to go and see uh, that I loved, well, for me, it was like the ultimate unexpected situation. I went to go and see uh, the Chili Peppers at Hyde Park. Oh, yes. Yeah, and supporting them was, of course, James Brown, who <laughs> I always wanted to see live. I literally did not know he was going to be supporting them. And it was amazing. I mean, you know, he was getting on. It was just, it wasn't too long after that he actually, he passed away. But I, I saw him at um, uh, Bridgewater Hall in Manchester. In, what? Yeah. And so it was like 2005, maybe something like that. Yeah, he played at the Bridgewater Hall. That was around the same time. Yeah, it would have been. What you've just said there, I saw that gig. So I'd been away in the wilderness for a couple of years came back in 2004 and one of my first gigs was uh, my you know one of my very best friends uh, Maisie back in Cardiff him and his wife bought me tickets to go to that Red Hot Chili Peppers gig in the Millennium Stadium and it was James Brown supporting so 2004 Chris does that 
is that about right or was he came he came back a year later because he had a bit of a little revival didn't he yeah he did I, I think it was i think it was 2005 obviously he was getting on a bit i mean he was in, in his 70s i think uh but he still did the whole you know fall oh i've fallen and then and then one of his guys would come on with a cape and then help the him oh, look, I'm, all, <laughs> yeah. I'm all right again yay how do you think that got approached the fact that he was that he was supporting chili peppers like do you think that chilies went do you know what he's getting on a bit let's just give it a go let's just put yeah. it yeah he can only say no you know or do you think he was like i don't really want to be headlining anymore i don't want to be out there i just want to perform I like yeah. the chilies. Can I come on? Board? I mean, it's a, it's kind of a perfect gig for James Brown, really, because I mean, yeah, he can headline. We know this, but yeah. you know, he can come blow the roof off and yeah. almost upstage the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Glad you say that, Chris, because did he? In my view, he absolutely did. Well, then, job done. There you go. Because that was the Californication album, and yeah. actually, which was massive. I don't like it. I'm not a fan. It was far too, I don't know what it was for me. They are a tight as you like band, the Chili Peppers. They are tight. Mm. They are so good. But for me that night, James Brown absolutely blew him out of the water. Well, famously, he, his band is drilled. Drilled. Did he have two drummers? Uh, oh, yeah, I, I want to say yes. But yeah, so if, I mean, famously, if you, you miss that bit, you're fired, you're out, there's somebody else who'll take your place. He was, you know, really, really a, a real stickler for it. I've heard Andy, sharp and tight. Andy in the odd socks is like that. I've heard that too. He kicks you out. Yeah. <laughs> no second chances. <laughs> <laughs> When you're performing, and I imagine it's slightly different, depends on what instrument you're playing. Do you look at the crowd a lot? Do you make a point of looking at the crowd? Do you like the eye contact or do you not like seeing the crowd? Or can you not even see them much? Sometimes you can't see them at all. Sometimes you can Mm. see the whites of everyone's eyes. (laughs) Really? Do you like that? I like it. I don't mind either way. Like I like having a little look around and I like looking at people. And sometimes I used to make a point of it. Like if I was feeling sassy, I would stare people down. Um, <laughs> but when I was drumming, I would, because you, like, you don't really necessarily have to look at what you're doing sometimes. So I would like be looking and eyeballing people. And it also depends like what frame of mind I'm in. Like, cause sometimes when you get really like, you get a super, you've been on tour for ages and like you get super comfortable and it's really muscle memory. Like sometimes your mind does wander a bit and you're thinking about other stuff. Like, um, yeah. <laughs> so, so sometimes, sometimes yeah, I would look around and like when you play big venues and there's loads of people and you just want to take it in, like so, like soak. We supported the Lumineers on an arena tour at the tail end of 2019, and so like playing the O2, I was like, I am just like, like Whoa. playing my base of the O2, and then like people putting all their phones in the air and stuff in the slow songs, and I was like, oh, yeah, I'm just gonna definitely look around the room for this for sure. <laughs> and is that in in an arena like that when it is so big? Are you just, is the only thing you're seeing those mobile phone lights? I'm assuming you can't see the whites of anyone's eyes there, can you? You can see the people at the front, but then like sometimes when they bring the house lights up and you see all of those people, it's absolutely bananas. But it's cool. And the same with festivals, it's like when you can see all the people when you play in the day and you can see all those people, you know, that's really cool. Do you thrive off it? Do you like that though? Love it. Is it? Yeah. Bloody love it. Uh, Yeah, totally. Why would you not? Honestly, I mean, I, I, yeah. Why like people are like mm, are you missing live music and i'm like 
uh, people like you, you know, you rely on external validation. I'm like, uh, yeah, like you don't, when you go to the, in the office in the morning, nobody watches you for half an hour in silence and then claps at what you're doing. Like, <laughs> like there's certain amount of narcissism and like a strange personality that craves that. It's like, I want to go to work and everyone be quiet and listen to what I'm doing and then give me a round of applause. <laughs> And then buy a t-shirt with my name on it. Yeah, buy a t-shirt with my name on it and buy me a drink afterwards and I'm going to get drunk. Like, you know, like just, you know. Absolutely. When you break it down to what it is, it's like, come and look at me do my job in silence. Like, yeah. you know, it's a certain amount of neediness. That when is. you put it like that, it's absolutely ridiculous, isn't it? Imagine if everybody just was like, operated like that in normal person jobs. <laughs> It's, it is yeah. nice to have. It is nice to be acknowledged, though. It is nice to have that gratitude. Yeah. Apart from, here's one for you. This was the best uh, autograph request I'd ever had. I was. It was Cardiff City. I'm a Cardiff City fan. It's half time. I'm having a wee, and it's football ground urinals. So they're just all open, big yeah. wall. I'm having a wee, and this guy literally leans over my shoulder. As I'm having a wee, and goes, oh mate, you uh, couldn't sign my program for me, could you? You're like in like... urine because at the moment that's what it's going to be. Yeah. Well, the weird thing is, he didn't even he didn't even break any uh, sort of ice. He didn't he didn't acknowledge, are you the guy from CBBS? He just went, excuse me, mate, could you sign my program? And I just all I could think of was just I just sort of looked up while slightly sort of crouching around, just went, can I wash my hands first? And that's what I said. <laughs> amazing so that acknowledgement sophie until you know yeah you must get loads of parents like trying to play it cool but desperate like as in like they're, pl- they're trying to they're trying to act like they don't care but they totally are like yeah they do back, because back, they see you all the time yeah back in the day and it was always the dads it was always, always the dads, the dads like, who would oh it's for my daughter yeah, it's for my oh no they would they would they would hardly ever come i would see them nudging the mums or their yeah. parents or whoever going love it just go and say something but that's you know, that's, that's not that's not a full crowd at the o2 which is which is brilliant which is brilliant So when we were about 14 and 15, we formed a band called Broccoli Haven. <laughs> you, are, you are shitting me. Right. And the reason we were called Bro- Broccoli Haven. Broccoli Haven. The reason we were called Broccoli, and it wasn't broccoli as in the vegetable. It was spelt B-R-O-C-K-L-E-Y. With a place in London. Oh, Exactly that. Right. Broccoli. And the reason we were called that was because at the time, Paul... I think he'd just gone on holiday with his parents to Milford Haven and he'd got off with a girl. Uh, so he had fond memories of the place. So we were thinking of a band name and we thought Haven's good, isn't it? So then we thought, let's just put a pin in a map and see where it lands for the first word. And it landed in broccoli. <laughs> I can't cope. I literally can't cope with this. <laughs> so that's what we were called. But hold on, this was actually your mirth aside. This was our proper school band, right? This is with Tom. Tom had joined. Tom was also in our year at school, so we'd known Tom. And we were all, there was a group of us in our year that liked the same kind of music. You know, we were kind of classed as slight oddballs because we liked the Smiths and stuff. Right. And everyone, everyone else, <laughs> kick your face. Everyone else, 
everyone else was into stuff like Madonna and stuff. So we were kind of the odd indie kids at that time. We weren't really that keen on charity stuff as much. So already we were kind of looked down upon in, in, in ways. I mean, to the point actually where going slight, sorry, slightly going back to Enam times, me and Paul. <laughs> You've you given yourself a time period for you now. I'm tired. Well, yeah, well, we're 11 or 12. You need to be careful when Alex is taking a drink and you say something like that, he's going to ruin his microphone. Okay. Yeah, when I take us back to the Enam times. Uh... <laughs> right, well, it's, it's, it's a bit of information I've just remembered. So basically, me and Paul would swan around school as 11 or 12-year-olds telling people we were in a band, you know. And there was one occasion on a school lunch break where we're all outside in the playing fields running around. Two or three of the harder lads from our year <laughs> kind of knocked me to the ground and one of them had his hand around my throat while, while he's on top of me on the ground. And he said to me, we've heard you the singer in a band. Sing then. <laughs> I'm thinking, well, <laughs> you'd have to take your hand off my throat for a start. <laughs> oh, no. What did you sing? Did you sing the demonstration song? No, no, I didn't sing that at that point. I just thought, well, that's not great. And this is, this is my first experience of fa- fame. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. yeah. <laughs> But luckily, the dinner bell, the dinner lady rang the dinner bell at that point, and everyone had to go back in. So I got out of that first gig. Uh, <laughs> I wanted to know. Oh, I would, I'd love to have known what song was on. The so, set so <laughs> well, I needed the demonstration, but I can't. I couldn't have done that, <laughs> at that, that age. So, um, so yes, so Broccoli Haven with uh, so Tom joined on bass. Um, Alan's <laughs> Alan Alan Leach's. <laughs> Well, Alan Leach's brother, John, joined on keyboards, proper keyboards, you know, oh. where he actually played them. And we had a, a lad called Magnus who played drums. So we were actually more of a serious, even though we were still quite young, we were taking it a lot more seriously. Yeah. Well, to the point where, you know, they used to do these things at the school we went to on a Saturday morning. They'd have these things called pop shops where some older guys would allow some younger kids to come in and they, they'd say, right, well, go off in groups and write the song and then perform it at the end. Um, and then they were there to kind of give you pointers on how how you could get the bridge to sound and, you know, and make sure yeah. the solo is not too long and all of this. But we would ordinarily turn up at these things with a fully formed song and just play it straight away. <laughs> so, you know, we'd always have, we always had that kind of thing going on. And Broccoli Haven was very house martinsy sounding, you know, and we were writing our own songs then. Unfortunately, my dad got testicular cancer and I wrote a song for him um, at the time. He got better from that. And I wrote a song called Roger the Workaholic. Because he was, he did work hard, my dad. Uh, and the chorus to that was something like Roger the workaholic worked for twenty years. Yes, sir, worked off his bullet. Oh, that is brilliant. That is brilliant. Uh, that was that was one of my couplets when I was about fifteen. Oh, that's classic Rickwitter. <laughs> How long so, did Broccoli Haven last? Broccoli Haven lasted until probably until we were about. 18 but we were doing gigs in pubs when we were about 15 i don't know how we got away with it really but we were going and playing in pubs when we were about 15 and getting told off at school for putting posters up around the school corridors advertising the fact that we were playing in the spotted cow <laughs> what what were you playing at those pub gigs at that age or all, all covers no no some of our own stuff and yeah. covers mixed 
together, you know, and there's, you know, I've got so many memories of that. For some reason, there'd be a group of people who would always like to come and start a fight at our gigs, but they'd never, they'd never be harmful to us. I think they just yeah. got it in the reds that one of a Broccoli Avon gig meant a big scrap. So I remember um, we did play this place that now it's now a Chinese restaurant. It was called the Spotted Cow, quite near the Barbican Centre. Um, and we played there and I remember it was packed. There must have been about 100 people in there. It was quite a small room, but it was full of people. And all I could see as we stood on this small stage performing was these big, heavy pub stools being thrown across people's heads. So the gig was stopped. Everyone's chucked out. And then when we're going up to get our little bit of money that we should have got for playing at it, the landlord saying, no, no, look at all of these broken stools. You're not, you're not getting paid. So that was kind of a harsh reality check straight away. Who was looking after you at 15 and 16? Who was getting you to that pub? And my parents driving us because me and Paul lived quite near to each other. And my dad had bought me like a little PA with legs and stuff. So my dad would probably take me and Paul and then Paul's dad would pick us up and take us home again. That is brilliant. I do remember um, a very early Shed 7 gig where they'd opened a new venue. I think it was called Ellington's and it was actually where the original Fibbers in York was before that moved on Stonebow in York. Um, but before it was Fibbers, it was called Ellington's and it was a couple of lads who'd taken it over um, and they invited us to be the first band on at their venue. So we arrived with all of our gear at about half four to set up and sound check to be presented by the two brothers saying, I'm really sorry guys, but the music license hasn't come in time so you're not going to be able to play. So we're thinking, oh no, if we've really looking forward to this so at the time Alan worked for this company that used generators so we thought right I'll tell you what why don't we Sainsbury's is just around down the road why don't we set up in Sainsbury's car park use a generator to power the amps and play a gig in Sainsbury's car park so we put a notice on the Ellington's front door because it couldn't open saying sorry we can't play it tonight but if you come to Sainsbury's car park we'll do a little gig for you there. And it was literally a five minute walk from the venue. So we set up in Sainsbury's car park. This must've been about 1991. We set up in Sainsbury's car park, like you would set up on a stage with the wall behind you. And there's no cars in there because the supermarket's shut. It's about eight o'clock at night. And about a hundred people probably came. So we, we started playing and it was quite residential around it. So we started playing and we only had about eight songs. So we played three or four songs and it was going all right. And then I think one of us had the idea of trying to create a little bit of press. So it was suggested that I went to the nearest phone box and phoned the police saying, <laughs> saying there's, a li- there's a band playing in St. Car Park and it's really loud. You know, it's causing dis- disturbance. So I went and did that, dashed back and told the crowd, right, the police might be here in a minute. So we carried on. No police, carried on, no police. Finished the set, still no police. So, well, we thanked the people for coming. They all left St. Chris Carper. We're packing our equipment away. The police arrive. What are you doing? That is amazing. <laughs> so, so, what are you doing? Well, we just did a gig, but we're off now anyway. Don't worry about it. <laughs> the crappest PR stunt ever. <laughs>
you're in your favourite venue, which is Ronnie Scott, and yes. you're there for the for the evening, and you're going to watch three artists. Who's your top three? What would be your perfect night at Ronnie Scott's? No, okay, that's easier. That's <laughs> easier. Okay, so some years ago, um, I went to see Curtis Stigers, oh. who crosses both ends of the pride, you know, because he's a pop yeah. guy, very good tenor sax player, and a great singer. And I went to see him. I had a few of his albums, and I uh, quite often at Ronnie Scott's, they'll sign CDs on the way out of the gig. You know, if you buy CDs, then they'll sign them. So I went up to speak to him, and I said, "Look, um, I've got all your stuff. Now, I've got everything you've done, but I just want to say, I just you're one of my favourite singers. I'm just so." And I was walking away, and he said, "Just a second, I know you." And he called me back, and there's a movie I did uh, a while, while back called Local Hero, and it was one of his favourite films. He's a New Yorker. And so we had a chat, and um, ever since then, um, whenever he's in London, we became friends, which is lovely. And whenever he's in London, uh, which is twice a year, he plays at Ronnie's, and we always meet up. We have dinner, drinks, whatever, and um, he's become a bit of a pal. And he is great to see, actually, because he's very entertaining. He's very very sharp, he's very cool, he's very funny. And then he sings, oh yeah, and he, he sings, I mean, he'll do like a Bob Dylan song, you know, and turn it into a jazz number. I just admire him very much, I think he's terrific. He has a, a beautiful singing voice, he's outstanding uh, playing, playing the saxophone, yes. he's funny, he, he's he's chiseled, very handsome. Yeah. He's really annoying. Really annoying, really annoying. <laughs> <laughs> your ticket stubs every single one yes, yes! <laughs> yes! she's one of us chris she's one of us <laughs> the water's warm yes yeah even e-tickets i've printed out i've like screenshotted e-tickets and printed them out just to have something because oh. the reason oh. being able to buy tickets through apps instead which i think is a great initiative and obviously better for the environment but for someone that can't let go of any yeah. busy thing attached to a gig or an event. I can even put those out. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's taken it to another level, actually, Sophie. Because on one hand, I feel sorry that you don't have a ticket. And there used to be lots of different designs and different promoters would have their own designs of tickets and then different venues. And then what made me smile, and I, I'm sure I still the same, but it's hard to tell these days with online ticketing is that you could get maybe three or four different kinds of tickets for the same gig mm-hmm. and and i'd be looking around and at the end of the gig i'd be looking on the floor going which one do i like i've got to keep mine of course but do i get another one but i mean that's other levels of geek i've done that before if there's been like different types of tickets and i've been leaving the venue different to mine i've picked that up as well <laughs> that's so embarrassing no I've just told you, and we, this is a safe place. <laughs> Chris and I, this is brilliant. I've argued with security guards over them taking my tickets away from me before. <laughs> wow. I, when I went to go and see 
the Arctic Monkeys at the O2. I was in the standing area, and for some reason, they decided to take the tickets off everyone going into standing. And out of all my tickets that I didn't want to lose, I did not want to lose my Arctic Monkeys tickets. So I stood there arguing with a guard until he let me keep this paper ticket. Oh, did they not make you get one on the way out? Oh, well, they had them in a bucket on the way out, and we were able to pick them up on the way out. But it was my first time at the O2, so I didn't understand that. And right. in my head, I was like, if I'm able to take the ticket in, can't I just keep it with me? But no, I... It was their way of stopping people from crowding out that standing area, because there's loopholes, not that I know them, and not that I've done them in the Manchester O2 Apollo. I may have. <laughs> we haven't just met our equal here, Chris. I think, I think in Sophie we've met. I mean, she's the queen. She's she's print she's printing off e tickets, Chris. <laughs> Sophie is the end of level boss. I, I might have to just go and burn my scrapbook in shame. <laughs> yeah, but Sophie, do you have an Excel spreadsheet with all the gigs you've ever been to? Right, my best friend Toby has been telling me to do this for years because he does and every time, I, I ring him most days a week and sometimes we'll be talking about gigs and I may have forgotten that I've seen a band yeah. and he's like, why don't you make a spreadsheet? <laughs> I, I've been to so many, I can't start it now, but he's got a long spreadsheet colour coded. <laughs> You can. So I, I, you can start it now because I, I started it in lockdown and it didn't take me that long, actually. Oh, wow. And, and I was starting back in 1989, which must seem like absolute ancient history to you. But if I could share the screen with you right now, Sophie, I would, because I could actually show you his spreadsheet. Well, oh, I mean, wow. he's, he's not he's not kidding. It's I, a beautiful I, I thing. I can show you the spreadsheet. But it means that I can search oh. by venue. I can search by band. <laughs> I can search by, uh, oh, forget it, sod it. It's, it's, That's incredible. it's it, it was really good fun to do. So um, I do recommend it. <laughs> I respect it. I respect it. I'm not going to sit here and laugh like Alex is you laughing. You must laugh, honestly. I know, I know that you're busy, but there must be a book that you are reading at the moment that isn't that good. So any time that you would <laughs> dedicate to reading the book, Give the book to somebody who might actually enjoy it and you get cracking on that Excel spreadsheet. Yeah? This is one of the greatest moments of the podcast so far, I'm going to be honest. Gig Stories podcast has, has <laughs> never been so great. I think our most important gig, I think it must have been, I don't know even know the year, but I'm guessing 87. And uh, it was a January, Tuesday night, freezing, pissing down. And it might have been 86. No, it was 87. It must have been 87. And we travelled down to London to play a, a small pub called the Cricketer's Arms in uh, the Oval, Kennington. Kennington Oval, right across from the cricket ground. We didn't have an audience or anything there. I think it probably might be the first time we played in London. And uh, we got there. And it's a little pub stage in, in the corner. The guy come out and said, there was literally, the cliche, there literally was five people and a man and a dog sat at the bar on the stool smoking. <laughs> you could smoke in a day's drink with his dog. And he had a pen and he was writing all the time. So I thought, oh, he's one of these tortured poet souls probably been in there all day. And uh, he was a little in the corner and the guy cut to us, the, the owner and said, listen, 
no one's bought a ticket, no one's coming, not even had an inquiry. It's a Tuesday night in January, you know, no one knows you. I'll pay your expenses, you don't even have to play if you don't want. So I was like, all right, okay, I didn't want to play. I thought, no, fuck it, just go back home and drive down back in the van. But I think it might be one of Bez's first gigs. I think Bez had just joined us, or he was either in the band or he was just standing around with us. And uh, everyone was like, Derek, the uh, Paul dad, was saying, no, no, do it, it's a practice on stage, just do it, just do it, it's like a rehearsal. So we said, yeah, okay. And the guy said, brilliant, the owner said, listen, I'll give you your expenses, I'll feed you all, and I'll give you booze while you're playing. Okay, so we did it, and we, we didn't even do a long set, but while we were doing it in between songs, we are doing, you know, the old Beatles thing of smoking and cigarettes and drinking and having a laugh and unplugging each other's equipment and playing, you know, and winding <laughs> each other up and get an argument like we always do. And we did the gig, and it was actually really good because there was no pressure. Part nothing of it, got paid, went home very drunk and whatever, and stoned, I presume. We got home, and then uh, that was a Tuesday. Then the following Wednesday, Paul Ryder used to drive to... Piccadilly Station when he was a postman to get the enemy a day early. He got the enemy on a Thursday in, in Western England. All of London got it on a Wednesday. But it came through on the trains Wednesday night. And he, he used to do that every week anyway. He just got it, you know, and he opened it and there was a review of us. I felt like half a page. And it was a guy with a dog. It was, a, it was Melody Maker, so not Enemy, or Sounds. It wasn't Enemy. It was Melody, it was Melody Maker or Sounds. I think it was Melody Maker. And the guy with the dog was a journalist who'd just got in oh. for a drink. He wasn't even interested in the band, just got in for a drink and was going to leave. And the review was something along that, you know, I'm paraphrasing completely because he said something like, I don't really remember so much about the music. I was just, I was just completely uh, mesmerised by what, by what I saw on stage. It was just something, I've, and music's never going to be the same since. I don't know what I've, I don't know what I've witnessed. I don't even know if I see him again, they'll be awful, but it was just something that, and it's the future. And after that, interviews just flooded in, you know. So doing that gig was really, was really, really important. Oh, if only we could find out who that journalist was. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. The, the two that got onto it really early was a guy called there was a guy called Del Fidel, who was a who's just recently died, a Nigerian guy. There was a guy called Jack Barron, but he wasn't any of them. And uh, and so that that gig then sort of uh, unsuspecting gig was you know really did something for you, boys. Yeah, I think the most important gig we did. We, knew, we never did. Very, we uh, nearly never did it. That's just fate. Yeah. Yeah. Always play the gig. Always play the mm. gig. You mentioned that you slipped in there, that you like playing Argentina and Tokyo. Mm. Do you see, and I know it might be harder for you as a drummer at the back there, do you see or feel a difference in the audiences when you travel around the world? Yeah, you can do. You actually feel it quite a lot as a drummer because you're playing the loudest instrument and you get to sit and see, you know, apart from looking at their asses all the time, you know, I can spot their asses. Am I, you know... <laughs> So yeah, you, you get to kind of see it and absorb it, like you know, a goalkeeper thing. You get to watch, you know, goalkeepers make good captains. You know, they all say drums make good producers because they're at the bat and they kind of, you know. Yeah, I've been saying this for a long time. There, there's so many football analogies that you can apply to a band, and that idea of a, a goalkeeper or a defender being a captain is a good because they can see the whole pitch. And I think, yeah. I think there is something something to be said. Um, for you know drummers drummers being the kind of the fulcrum the the, the heart of the, the band really when I mean, you know my my opinion on drummers anyway mm, yeah because you've yeah great photography by the way yeah <laughs> no, so, well it, it kind of it, i find i find drummers coming to i thought you could attribute this to anyone but i, I find with drummers over the years it, they have a, a very straight ones focused on the complete weird weirdo freaks you know they have one or the other where do you fit? That's which I am. I'm, I'm somewhere in the middle. I'm the, uh, <laughs> uh, I don't really consider myself a drummer, just a musician. I don't really, you know, I'm, 
No, I do. So you see, there I go again. Because you're a drummer. I do, but it's not. It, my focus in the band was always, you know, co-writing the songs and be like, the drums were kind of the last thing that came into my mind. And, you know, we've not done a gig since last December. I've not picked a drumstick up since then. You know, it's been 13 months. I've not picked a drumstick up then. It's so funny because you came along at a time for me personally where I'd gotten out of pop, but um, there was a lot of, there was a lot of guitars, wasn't there? You know, the, mm. the guitar scene was happening, whether it was heavy metal um, the Seattle thing, the Nirvana thing, you know, and what immediately hooked me was to the to the Mondays when I first heard it played played to me on a cassette by my sister's uh, boyfriend who used to drive down from Manchester every now and again to Cardiff <clears throat> was the rhythm section, and for me the the, the Happy Mondays is is personally is all about the rhythm section the bass and the drums, it was such a groove and it just sounded so different to other stuff that was out there. By accident, I mean, Tony Wilson used to say that all the time. He used to constantly say, I mean, yeah, he, he's got in his book somewhere. He's, he's, he, done, he did an interview with the Daily Telegraph because they'd done a review. We played at London and they did a review and the Telegraph had said, the review was something like, it was all about the, the drums and bass. They wrote about that. And Tony Wilson found out the journalist was and did an interview with him. And Tony used to always say that. You know, everyone plays a part, you know, it's like, it's by pure accident, me, Paul, it's, it, it is, if you listen to the early Monday stuff, it's definitely a cross between the Bunny Men and, and Sly and the Family Stone, you know, it was, you know, we, we were very cautious, we, everything was very organic, but we were very cautious, never, nothing was contrived or pre-planned, and, but we were obsessed by not doing them endings, you know, like, doom, 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 you'll never see us ever do them, you yeah. know, and it was uh, never anything cliche and... Uh, you know, there's never any cliche parts. We just look at each other if we did it. It was all about keeping it grooving and, and just leaving it for, you know, for them to... And we, and we could get away with being a bit commercial sometimes because, you know, Sean would stop it and Mark would. You know, Mark was on his own trip. You know, his every metal trip, which we hated him. We tried to stop him. But if he'd, if he'd been on the same wavelength as us, it probably wouldn't have created what we created. Mm. So everything just all plays part. And... Hope you enjoyed those wee nuggets of chat from early 2021. If you want to hear these episodes in their entirety, then you can find them on, well, you can find them on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, and a load of other places. The voices you heard, apart from uh, me and Alex, were Clint Boone, Catherine Williams, Rick McMurray, Andy Day, Sophie Galpin, Rick Witter, Dennis Lawson, Sophie Williams, and Gaz Whelan. As for the other 18 guests we've had on since, do not fear. We'll be putting out another couple of compilations in due course. In the meantime, get listening, get subscribing, tell your friends, rate and review and get in touch on social media at GigStoriesPod. And you can email us with suggestions, comments, um, you can suggest guests we might want to have on. Info at GigStoriesPodcast.com Alex and I will be back very soon with another cracking guest for you, so stay awake. Until then, see you in 22.